Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the We Believe You podcast. Today, we're taking a small departure from our typical episode to bring you all a talk from someone who is just amazing. Sonali Rashatwar is a sex therapist and health at every size activist. We hosted her in the fall of 2020 for CSU's Body Acceptance Week, and this talk is part of her time here. Originally, we recorded this hoping to start a different program led by our very talented Angelica Murray Olson. Angelica has recently left the WGAC, and we didn't want to lose this very important conversation. So I hope that you all enjoy and learn from the knowledge that Sana Lee is about to share with all of us. First of all, thank you for having me. For those who have never heard of me or my work, my name is Sonali Rashatwar. I am popularly known on Instagram as the Fat Sex Therapist. But outside of my public persona, I am a queer, non-binary, bisexual, cat mom and plant dad. I am an overwaterer. I love to collect art. I really love portraits and art is really important to me. So I'm always looking at beautiful folks of color drawn in charcoal or watercolor, no matter what room I'm in. Professionally, which is how most folks know me, I am a trained sex therapist. And so what that means is I work with folks who are experiencing what are typically called sexual dysfunctions. Dysfunction typically in like the white heteronormative, cisnormative sense are typically thought of as things like erectile dysfunction or vaginal dryness, uh, really like physiological conditions. The perspective that I bring to my sex therapy is really different because I think that when the population that I come from, which is like queer and trans folks of color, that when we experience sexual dysfunction, it sometimes can look like a low libido because we're really depressed at the failures of the current carceral state. That like, we're really depressed at our local and federal uh, lack of response to our calls to defund the police. And that impacts how much pleasure we'll experience or how much sexual freedom we can access. Uh, So that's what I, I do that's a little bit different. I'm based in Philadelphia. And my business partner, Kala Vesethi and I, we are both queer South Asians and we co-own the Radical Therapy Center. And what we do there is, you know, very similar thread. Uh, We politicize our therapy. So we try to bring systems of oppression into the therapeutic space. And we remind our clients every day when they're struggling with internalized capitalism, because it looks like things like productivity shame or shame around rest. Uh, shame around giving themselves pleasure, things that feel good and taste good. So that's a little bit of me in a nutshell. My niche specialty within sex therapy is that I'm really interested in looking at the ways that diet culture and rape culture overlap. And I'm really interested in helping folks understand how they can work through anything that's causing them shame, like sex shame or food shame, and how to treat that using pleasure, how to like give themselves permission to access pleasure as a way to release themselves from experiences of shame. I think when I'm working with folks who are having a hard time understanding what phobia feels like, one of the easiest examples I can give is when someone who's even, maybe not even politically fat or socially would be labeled as a fat person, experiences going to the doctor's office and having a medical experience, a symptom, a condition, belittled and kind of blamed on body size, blamed on someone's experience of fatness. And when that happens, what we're experiencing is what we like to call medical fat phobia. 
So medical fat phobia is this experience of when our body size is kind of blamed for all of our ailments and the fat itself is considered the panacea that if we just cure the fat, if we just remove the fat, then all of the ailments will just evaporate along with it. It's actually pretty lazy medicine though, because we can't just treat fat people like there's a thin person trapped inside them. And once we release that thin person, then we can just treat thin people. That's actually not appropriate science. <laughs> we have to maybe develop. No, I can assure you, I have been fat all my life, and I can assure you there is not a thin person inside me trapped in there. What we need is actually to push the medical profession to create new forms of treating people based on who they are as individuals, which is so hard to even have to say out loud. But I want us to dismantle is actually the way that science has been authorized to produce knowledge in order to create all these studies that are really maybe sometimes only measuring the health experiences or symptoms or treatments on cisgender, able-bodied, white men or women, and then kind of generalizing those treatments for the rest of the population. And when we do that, who we fail is everyone else who is not from that narrow subset of the population. And that's what we're seeing with medical fat phobia, that actually disproportionately, it is folks of color who are not thin. It is disproportionately folks who are not rich, who are not thin. So what we see here is that poor folks, um, POC, poor POC, are experiencing a lot of these really negative health outcomes because of classist, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, fatphobic, racist medicine and science, and not actually our bodies experiencing poor health outcomes. It's a lot harder to be fat going to the doctor because of a doctor's medical racism, just being fat or being a not white person. Yeah, so what we're seeing now is that BMI, as it has been used in the last decade, BMI has been used as a way to gatekeep folks from even receiving treatment or having a positive COVID diagnosis. This was first reported back in March that a high BMI score was being used to prevent and decide whether or not someone would get access to a ventilator and ventilator treatment. And so what we know based on how COVID treatment goes, not getting a ventilator is basically deciding whether or not someone could survive their COVID symptoms. And so what we can predict is that the long-term effects of this are going to look like seeing a lot more disabled folks having died from a COVID diagnosis and a lot more fat folks dying from having a COVID diagnosis and folks blaming fatness or disability itself for that death sentence instead of the way that medical access, medical intervention was gatekept. Also, this assumption that like just because I'm at home, I have like ample free time that like just because I'm working from home that I'm resting while I'm at home. Right. Like now we have to kind of carve out workspace within our home space so that we can have some kind of separation between work and play. It kind of assumes that like surviving a pandemic should be business as usual, that like surviving the largest civil rights movement in the experience of humankind is you know business as usual. We should just be able to like go back to our regular work. It's actually impossible. And it does take up a lot of brain space. I've had a number of clients who have experienced an uptick in their insomnia symptoms, anxiety symptoms, 
and GI symptoms due to having to survive pandemic and now four month Black Lives Matter uprising. So reproductive justice is really about who has access to create the kind of families that they want, the way that they want them to look, how safe that family will be, whether or not that family will be able to have you know, access to all of the, the financial freedom, the health freedom, the sexual freedom that they need in order to have the happiest life that they want, to live as long as they want. And reproductive justice wants us to consider what are all the barriers that that family is going to experience in order to keep them from living the happiest life that they want. So when we think about reproductive justice and center it around folks of color, fat folks, we think of really different issues than we would with typical reproductive justice conversations. We might think of, you know, typically folks would think of like abortion access or whether or not folks can get access to birth control. These are definitely reproductive justice issues, but those primarily affect white women. And we assume that just because they primarily affect white women, that they generalize and affect everyone else too. And many times that is the case, but if we instead recenter the whole conversation around folks of color, um, and in this case, your question specifically is about fat individuals, um, what are the problems that folks specifically experience? And what are the things that are barriers to prevent them from creating the families that they want? Because many times, especially for families of color, the issue isn't, you know, how do I get access to terminate a pregnancy? It's what are actually are all societal conditions that are keeping me from having the family that I want? A vast majority of folks who go for abortion procedures and pregnancy termination under the right conditions would have loved to keep that pregnancy. Um, if they had the right social supports, money, if police brutality wasn't an issue, if there were social structures and support nets to, to provide for that family. So I think about fat folks, I think about how in certain states, a parent's fat body can provide legal grounds to terminate someone's parenting rights because fatness is not considered a legal protection. It's not considered like race or gender in the same way. I think of a case in the UK when someone's custody was terminated by the state because their parenting was not seen as healthy enough or not disabled enough, so abled enough in order to raise that kid. Uh, we see this with work protections as well. Uh, and this, this case also came out of the UK. A fat employee wasn't able to tie a preschooler's shoe and so was terminated by the preschool. And so because fat people are not considered a protected people under local mandate, uh, they were fired from the job and, and that firing was not considered protected. But what we could consider instead are someone else could have tied that shoe, like the same way that we would protect a, a disabled person and help them to be able to keep their job. Like, yeah, maybe there's like a couple of things I couldn't do as a fat person, but that doesn't mean that I don't deserve that job or that I don't need that job or that I'm not capable of having that job. Uh, so we think about the weight limit with plan B that folks over, I believe it's like 150 or 180 pounds, something like really absurd that plan B itself is not seen as medically effective or might not be effective on someone above that weight limit. And so to me, what that means is that, you know, there were at least dozens, maybe even hundreds of people that were responsible for creating that one pill that we now see in drugstores that we can now get for free in some places over the counter. And so I, I have to think about all these dozens of people and their conceptualization of all people who have uteruses, they were thinking that the vast majority of people would be able to receive access to this pill 
within this weight class, or they were intentionally creating a pill that would not allow everyone to be able to access for free or cheap control over their own bodies. I feel like that's one of the biggest issues that I think of, the way that weight and the way that medicine is created, the way that procedures are deemed effective on certain body types. They're often practiced on a certain range of weights, and they don't even conceptualize what it would look like on patients who are in larger bodies. They don't get to practice, so they don't know what it looks like. They assume it's going to be abnormal. And so instead of trying or creating a new procedure, they're just like, we can't do it. You've got to lose weight so that you can fit our models instead of creating new ones. It's really a projection from medical professionals onto their fat patients they're projecting like, I feel inadequate because I was not given training on the full range of weights that my patients will come in. I was only given training for this range of weights. So I really need you to like change yourself so that you can fit within my expertise. I was like, actually, you know what? Maybe you're not the right doctor for me. I need to go see someone who does have a larger range in expertise than you do. Health at every size care is now seen as a specialty. Like to be able to treat all people is seen as a specialty. It's ridiculous to me because fat folks, you know, it's called the obesity epidemic because there are so many fat people. So it begs me to ask the question, like if the majority of people in the US are fat, then why on earth are we still tailoring medicine to only thin people? It just doesn't make sense to me. This is a reframing that's been really important in me learning to love my body the way it is without changing a single thing and offering it respect and admiration the same way that I would offer, you know, any other thing that I inherit. Like there is this like silly thing that my mom has in her home that I told her I, I really want to inherit from her. And it's like a paper towel rack. Like it's very silly. It's very Americana. There's a goose painted on it. There's carnation pink hearts. And there's nothing special about it. It's just like a wooden paper towel wrap that you would mount onto a wall. But because I remember it, I have like images of it from childhood. I remember it fondly. And the way that I would treat that heirloom with, with such tender love, the way that I would look at any flaw or paint fit in that paper towel holder, <laughs> I would look with like astonishment or like, wow, this paper towel wrap really survive the test of time and like it was made well and it, it held up i want to look at my body the same way because we think about epigenetics we think about generational trauma when my mom was gestating in my grandmother's womb you know almost 60 years ago my mother was born with all the eggs she'll ever have in her lifetime so i spent time in my grandmother's womb and so I have to think that, you know, there's some kind of connection bridging those three generations. And I have to find some gratitude, some like good reasons why my body looks the way it does. Because, you know, I could find a hundred reasons, you know, leaving my home, a hundred reasons why other people will tell me that my body shouldn't look the way it does. My body shouldn't be this fat. It should be more toned. It should be more slim. It should be more thin. It should be stronger. But what I want to tether myself to is that, like, I come from a line of fat people. While I am the fattest in my family, my family is fat. I'm not abnormal in my family. Like, we're pretty fat. And so I have to imagine, okay, for a lot of folks, like, body love doesn't feel really accessible. Like, it's hard for me to imagine me loving my body. I'm like, okay, fine. 
let's not jump to love. What if we try the baby step of gratitude? How can you find gratitude in your body as it is? And I have to think that, okay, if I can find pieces of gratitude for why I'm fat, you know, my arms are really plushy and they're really soft and my sister loves to lean on it in long road trips when we would go down to South Carolina. My sister would take naps on my plushy, soft arms and shoulders. And she would choose my shoulder over the cold car window because my arm is warm and soft and tender. And she can like cozy up and snuggle up in it. So I have to find ways that my fat is good and useful and protective. And I think about, you know, if we politicize it, I think about how my grandmother survived cross-continental migration. She survived British colonialism. She survived partition. She survived a lot of things where being fat helped her to stay alive as long as she's wanted to stay alive. And I have to imagine the same reason. I'm probably this fat because if famine were to happen again, I'd have a better chance of surviving. <laughs> if genocide were to happen again, I would have a better chance of surviving because I've got surplus kind of built into my body. Uh, I'm warmer in the winter and I'm not cooler in the summer, but we're working on it. The long-term work of healing from sexual trauma involves integrating that experience into the rest of our lives. So a lot of the early work that I do with my clients who are survivors is, you know, not continuing to wish that they could like cut off their trauma as if it was like a limb of their body, but instead like how do we understand that this limb as necessary in our whole, the whole patchwork of our lives. So it's a constellation that needs to be integrated into the rest of our universe. It's just one constellation. And also to remember that that experience, while it should not have happened, and while it was painful and damaging in a lot of ways, also provided really useful data to us that we need for the rest of our lives. Some of the data is really deep truths and knowledge about the world that survivors really understand in very deep and intimate ways that not all people have our best interest in mind. Only I know what is actually right for me. Like only I can have my best interest in mind. I must be skeptical of others' intentions, that I have to trust myself and the decisions that I make for myself. I have to listen to my gut, my body, and my intuitive knowledge has a lot of wisdom that sometimes I'm trying to like override and shut down. Maybe I could benefit from, from listening to and really paying attention to. So a lot of the long-term work has a lot to do with like embodiment, coming back home to ourselves, finding value in that body wisdom and respecting and honoring it. I don't romanticize the way that I talk about my elders or my ancestors because I know we are not all saints. I know there are folks in my lineage who must have had a damaging casteist lineage because in my family, my mom's side is upper caste and my dad's side is lower caste. So I know that my mom's side of the family has had things like servants in their homes, which means that they're benefiting from casteism and they're exploiting someone's labor tremendously and their social status in the world in order to exploit their labor. So I, I do not romanticize my family when I use that analogy of heirloom. There's absolutely still conflict in the way that I even relate to my mother and grandmother, even in that story that I was talking about. 
My grandmother was who my mother inherited her body shame from. My grandmother is extremely colorist, extremely fat phobic. Even in her 80s, she's still concerned about how much she weighs. You'd think someone who has seen the better portion of a century, and you'd think they'd have you know, more interesting things to share than how much she weighs every day. Those things still are like really strong coding that she had inherited. So even for those of us who have conflict in our families and experienced trauma in our families, our families are not sites of deep love or appreciation or respect. That narrative is still for us. The narrative of how our body has inherited things that we're not totally responsible for. The body can still be an heirloom. Our bodies can still be something that we've inherited even if there's conflict around it. A lot of what we don't transform within our lifetime will just get transmitted to the next generation. So we have a decision to make. Do I want to transform this narrative that I've inherited or do I want to transmit it? That's our decision to make. Our elders didn't understand how powerful they were and really thought that they were, you know, not powerful enough to challenge systems. And so what they did was they passed down that work to us for a generation who could decide, yeah, I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough to push back and push against the system and demand change. You know, I find it actually pretty powerful. My mother didn't, she understands what structural fat phobia is. She understands and taught me really explicitly that like it would be harder for me to be fat because it would be hard to find a male partner. It might be hard to advance in my career. It might be hard to get pregnant. And maybe because of medical neglect or maybe because of myths around fertility. My mom and my grandmother didn't think that they were strong enough to push against these systems, right? And that's why they teach us how to fall in line, um, how to assimilate. And, and you're right, that is a coping strategy. That is a way that we can like survive the system by learning how to like fit into the existing structure. But we get to decide. I think it's actually quite powerful that we get to decide for ourselves that collectively we can create the skills to push back and demand something better. For the vast majority of us, that stuff is out of our hands. For our body size and whether or not we're gonna acquire disease, about 80% of that relies solely on genetics. The other 20% is like lifestyle factors, what we eat, what we have access to, you know, whether or not our class allows us the time and energy and disposable income to devote extra, you know, income or time to maintaining the project of health. But for the vast majority of us, the project of maintaining a healthy looking body is like something that's only afforded to elites and like class because they've got the disposable income and time to do it. The rest of us are just trying to survive. I see body image often used as a, another way to keep someone trapped in this false belief system that their body uh, or that their personhood is unworthy. That I've worked with folks, I've worked with a client who I can think of in the last few years who was experiencing what I would label as body image abuse. And this was a client who had recently survived sexual assault and her partner knew it, her boyfriend knew it. And her boyfriend, three weeks after the assault had said to her like, hey, I noticed you're not going to the gym like you usually do. And she was like a conventionally attractive white woman. And 
he had said to her really explicitly, so like really not mincing any words, saying, hey, if, if I don't see you in the gym um, pretty soon, this relationship really isn't going to be one that works for me. But like the way you look is really important and really conditional on whether or not I'm going to love you, have affection for you, want to stay in this relationship with you. Uh, so I identify that as body image abuse because in this instance, her body, her body size, body appearance, aesthetics, attractiveness, desirability was being monitored and weaponized against her in order to tell her that this is the determining factor on whether or not she was worthy enough to stay in a relationship with, that she was being taught that if she was not seen as desirable by him, then who who will she date? Who will be the next person who she'll be able to date if her desirability is so fragile and uh, requires such constant maintenance, even when she is depressed and down and anxious and struggling with really intense, acute traumatic symptoms of like hypervigilance and having difficulty sleeping, having difficulty eating. It was just really unempathetic, unkind, and brought to her attention that it was not a good relationship for her. But she also had a really hard time telling herself that she deserved to leave. She felt really like, she felt really caged, trapped in that relationship. This is often one of the primary ways that a, a survivor or a victim will be convinced that they can't trust their own body. And this is the, the deeper work of what diet culture and rape culture are trying to convince non-men of. Diet culture affects everyone, all genders, but rape culture specifically is trying to convince non-men that we can't trust our own bodies that our sexuality is too scary and like unwielding and unpredictable and that we're too ravenous, that's not good, uh, that we, we shouldn't be able to listen to our own bodies and give ourselves what we need. And so many times for a perpetrator, someone who's manipulating another person, they might say, uh, are you sure you should have that second portion? Um, I think one's good enough. Or they'll say, I'm really concerned about your health. I'm really worried about you. Meanwhile, they're not really asking for like your blood panels. They're not really like asking if you even want that kind of help. They're kind of assuming that they're responsible for you. And so what's missing there is like consent, informed consent. So us as an individual offering our partners uh, an opportunity to say, uh, actually, hey, I'm pretty good at managing my own body and my own health and my own weight. But what I would love your help on is maybe talking about our relationship or whether or not we feel emotionally connected or sexually satisfied and I'm good. I don't, I don't need you to micromanage what I'm eating or how much exercise I'm getting or whether or not you think what I'm doing is healthy or good for me. I got that. I can handle that myself. Thank you. So if we haven't been in the relationship too long, then what's good about that is that we might not have been subject. We might not have experienced so much gaslighting that we can't trust ourselves anymore. Hopefully at that point, we, we can still hear our own internal voice. And, you know, even if our own internal, like our gut, our primitive brain is only telling us information like um, maybe it's not even giving us a script of what to say or how to like protect ourselves. But the only data it's giving us is like exclamation point. That doesn't feel good. Like my partner said this thing to me and exclamation point. Uh, we don't like that. It didn't feel good. Didn't sit right. I don't know what, I don't know why, I can't really understand why. It just, I know it didn't make me feel happy to hear that thing. 
And getting that exclamation point is really good data because that means that you have some connection to your gut, to your like intuitive sense, to your body wisdom. And what can be really helpful is to make sure that you have community. So like even community can mean one friend who you're talking to outside of the relationship where that one friend can support what that and help you uncode what that asterisk means or what that exclamation point means. Having a community is really important because it helps us to uh, kind of practice and like role play. You know, what are the things that I can say to my partner? These are the typically the things that they say to me. How can I challenge that? How can I kind of defend myself and protect myself? And community is so important in that because also uh, we need like accountability buddies sometimes. If we are really prone to believing someone else, believing someone else when they gaslight us, to not trust our own bodies or our own intuition, or our own needs. Sometimes community or that one friend outside the relationship can help hold us accountable and say, now you told me last week you were gonna break up with that person because the conversations were not going well, they were not respecting your boundaries, they were still pretty fat phobic to you and basically didn't wanna change, didn't wanna grow or transform in the ways that you were asking them to. So that person on the outside is really important because they can help hold you to your own internal needs and remind you, this is something that's really important to you. You actually really were on the track of having a better relationship with food or sex or pleasure or with your own body. You're on the right track, but um, this relationship's kind of sidetracking you. So I think those are two things that are really important, like being able to listen to ourselves, having that internal connection through our own like gut, and body wisdom, and then also having folks who are taking care of us outside the relationship so that we're not just experiencing this in, in silence, that no one knows what's going on. I'm gonna give two, like a pleasure practice and a gratitude practice. So creating a pleasure practice is something that is really helpful when we wanna get back in touch with that body wisdom. And body wisdom is really just you having the ability to listen to what you're your body is asking you for. I know when I haven't had a vegetable in a while, my body is kind of like, Sonali, please eat a cucumber. Like there's just this gentle whisper somewhere deep in my body, like begging for a crunchy vegetable. Cause I do really enjoy, you know, all kinds of food, cake, cupcake, donuts, icing right out of the jar. Fine also. Yeah. And salads and cucumbers and all kinds of things. So really listening to my body to ask, to sit and listen and ask it, what do you want? What are you craving? And to prioritize that. So a pleasure practice can just be literally a daily moment when you ask yourself, what do I really want? And so that can be around food. It can be around your to-do list. What do I really want to do on my to-do list next? What chore do I really crave to complete today? Or it could be around sexual pleasure. You know, what will I really find sexually gratifying? You know, what kind of porn do I want to watch today? What book do I want to read today? Maybe I want to read before bed. What are the things that are going to put a smile on my face and make me feel just a little boost of joy in my day? I know I really like to look at clouds. There's some kind of like fleeting beauty about seeing a cloud, like a really beautiful cloud formation that's like really fat and plump and fluffy. Because if you were to look back at that cloud, you know, two minutes later, it will have expanded and look really different. So there's something really beautiful about clouds to me. And so I like to take photos of clouds. I like to just like, you know, take a walk and especially at sunset, look at the clouds. 
So that's something that I think of throughout the day. I know like right around sunset, I will like to look up at the sky or take a walk. So things like that, like how do we kind of build in moments in our day for pleasure, for things that just bring a smile on your face and they don't benefit anyone else in the whole world, just you. So pleasure practice. And the second one is a gratitude practice. So this can be especially helpful if self-love feels hard or like uh, just pure admiration for the self feels hard. Gratitude is kind of like a backdoor way into offering yourself something kind that you can say. Because within capitalism, we are really used to seeing our bodies as functional tools. We're really used to seeing our body as something that we use for a larger productive purpose. So sometimes it's easier for us to come up with reasons why we're grateful for the body. And so gratitude practice can look like in a journal, writing down three things that you're grateful for, and it could be about your body, it could be about your personality, it could be about your skill sets, it could be about anything, it could be aesthetics, it could be your music taste. What are three things that you find gratitude for? Gratitude practice can be used especially in specific moments when you experience shame. So for my clients who experience sex shame, especially immediately after they masturbate, we're gonna treat that like moment of sex shame with this gratitude practice. So I want us essentially to be able to remove that shame that they experience with just gratitude over time. And so the first couple of times it might feel strange, but immediately after masturbation, what I would encourage, or just solo sex, just self-pleasure of any kind really, because you can experience food shame after eating a cookie. So you could do the same thing literally anywhere. You know, you don't have to have sex for sure. I recommend like some kind of physical touch that's really gentle and sweet. Maybe like a gentle hug or like a gentle caress or even like this face hold went viral on TikTok a couple months ago. Just like holding your face really gently and like saying something really sweet to yourself. So I know that one thing that I really like to do is I like to thank myself. I like to say, thank you, Sonali. And it always makes me smile because it feels like I'm saying it out loud to like my inner child, someone who really needs to hear it. This moment alone, especially after something like eating or solo sex, can move you to tears. And that's totally fine and normal because if we are spending a lot of our day, you know, not really tethered to the body, that moment after orgasm or after enjoying a cookie could really bring us back into the body and release some feelings sometimes. So it's actually quite common to release an emotion, have a good cry, and that would be totally normal too. So play your practice and a gratitude practice. All right. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 
A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in the podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more information on KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.